0: today if you want to start turning your Bible we're going, to, uh, we're going to read about God's warning to Paul about his trip to Jerusalem but let me warn you first okay this sermon comes with a warning when our Sunday school class found out that Pam and I were going to be coming here to help with the, uh, the teaching on an interim basis this summer one of our Sunday school members gave me some advice he said I know about interim teachers here's the advice Uh, you want to be mediocre. You don't want to be so bad that everybody leaves, but you don't want to be so good that they don't want the new person to come. So you need to be mediocre. So my first thought when I heard that was, excellent, I can be really good at mediocre, you know, which is is a statement that doesn't make sense in and of itself. But um, consider yourself warned. Now, actually, with that advice, it's pretty bad, isn't it? Because if you think about what, that, what he told me, uh, when it comes to our Christian work, we give ourselves fully to the Lord. We don't try to be mediocre. And especially when it comes to God's Word, there's nothing mediocre about God's Word at all. Because God's Word is living and it's active and it's exciting and it's insightful. It's personal. It's life-changing. There's nothing mediocre about God's Word. So, I will tell you that... Uh, the messages may well be mediocre. It would not be surprising, but it won't be for lack of effort and it won't be for lack of content because we're going to focus on God's Word uh, this morning and in the coming weeks. So it's uh, a privilege for us to be here. As I, as I introduce me, my name is David. My wife Pam is here with me. We, uh, we're honored and privileged to be back in Lake Jackson. It's a place where our family grew up. And it's a place where we were honored to have a front row seat uh, at the birth of this church. We got to see this church established. We got to see it uh, gifted, guided, challenged, uh, grow. We got to see this church used through its early years. So it's a real privilege for us to be back at Grace Bible Church. So... I learned last week that Brian taught y'all a few things about the Bible. One of them was context, 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 and you have to say it three times, I was told. So we're going to try to set the context for uh, what we're going to study this morning. And if we could uh, start with just a, uh, a timeline of the book of Acts. I don't. You've been studying the book of Acts for many weeks, but uh, what the book of Acts is is essentially approximately a 32-year timeline from the death and burial and resurrection of Christ through Paul's house arrest in Rome. It takes about 32 years, and you can think of it symmetrically. There's two uh, five-year periods at either end and two 11-year periods in the middle that you see on that timeline there. So, Paul's conversion is one of the keynotes of the book of Acts. We don't know how old Paul was when he was converted, but he was a Pharisee already, which probably means he was at least 30 years old. So in his early 30s, probably, and then in the Book of Acts, he's in Christian service for another 20 years. So you know he is maybe 35. He served another 20 years. So by the time we get to him now, which is at the start of this last five-year period, he's uh, already a young man. That's not what you were thinking. He's already an old man. But uh, Pam and I were thinking he's a young man. He's he's. he's He's probably in his early 50s somewhere when we, when we get to him in chapter 21. Now uh, Acts 21 takes place at the end of his third missionary journey that you've been studying. He wrote some really interesting books during his third missionary journey. He wrote the first and second letter to the Corinthian church and he wrote the book of Romans. And we're going to refer to both of those letters in our talk today because it's interesting as we study history like this particular chapter is to look back at what Paul was actually thinking and writing and what God was laying on his heart during this time. And so what we know from the other books is that Paul wanted to visit Jerusalem on his way home from his third missionary journey. And so uh, he starts that journey from Philippi up in Macedonia and he wants to go to Jerusalem so what, what, what do we know about this journey? First of all, in 1 Corinthians 16, if you want to turn there, we'll know why he wanted to go to Jerusalem. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians or forward to 1 Corinthians, we'll look at uh, chapter 16, starting in uh, verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul writes, Now concerning... The collection for the saints. He wrote this immediately before he left on his journey to Jerusalem. So now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem." If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul wanted to collect an offering to take to the church in Jerusalem. And so he proceeded to do that. it's interesting that this particular gift, this offering, is only mentioned one time in the book of Acts. And it's after Paul gets to Jerusalem and he's, during his trial he mentions that he brought a gift to the church in Jerusalem. But from his letters we know that he wanted to collect an offering to bring to the Jerusalem believers. And you see in uh, in verses 4 and in verse 4 of what we just read he said also um, well I lost my place now he said he wanted to bring some people with him some Gentile believers with him so flip back to Acts and let's see who some of these believers that he brought with him were. This is Acts chapter 20 that y'all studied a few weeks ago. So, who went with him in Acts chapter 20, verses 4 and 5? Um, Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the, A- and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in the days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So Paul wanted to bring not only an offering to the church in Jerusalem, but he wanted to bring some Gentile believers with him. I think as a show of unity between the Gentile and the Jewish believers. So the churches were encouraged to not only give an offering... but to select some men to go with Paul to Jerusalem. And it says there in the passage that we just read... he he selected three from Macedonia... three from Galatia... or two from Galatia... and two from Asia Minor. So from the world in which Paul had been traveling... over the previous ten years... he selected these men along with Luke who were to accompany Paul to Jerusalem to deliver this gift. So he wanted to go to Jerusalem to deliver a gift to show unity. And he wanted to get there by Pentecost. We see that uh, in the passage that we just read. If we just keep reading in Ch- Acts chapter 20. He... Um, he's, in verse 6 he says, But he sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days came to Troas where we stayed for seven days. And then in verse 16 of the same chapter chapter 20, Paul writes for Paul for, I mean Luke writes, "For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost." So Pentecost is the feast that takes place 50 days after the Passover. So Paul and his friends celebrated the Passover in Philippi. As soon as the Passover was over, they left and they had 50 days to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. Pentecost is sometimes called the Feast of Sevens or the Feast of the Harvest. Or it's actually the feast that took place when the wheat harvest was first brought in in Jerusalem. So it was a it was a feast celebrating the bountiful harvest, and it takes place about this time of year in the early uh, early summertime in Jerusalem. So they wanted to get there by the time of Pentecost. Now it's my uh, intention to cover with you the first 16 verses of chapter 21 today, and I'm going to be reading from the uh, ESV Bible. I normally study out of the NIV, but in some churches, that would be blasphemy to even tell you that. But uh, so I'm going to try to read from the ESV version as we uh, as we study the first 16 verses. So let's read, if you would, with me, chapter 21, and we'll read the first uh, the first three verses where he makes the first three stops. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. So I was actually surprised when I read those three verses. The surprising part of those verses is that there's nothing surprising about those three verses. If you think about Paul's life in Acts, it's one surprise and adventure after another from the beginning all the way through the book of Acts. But here he says in this particular passage, they make their first three stops. They're in Miletus when they leave where where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. He makes the first stop on the island of uh, Kos. He makes the second stop on the island of Rhodes. And then they port at the town in what is today southern Turkey, Patara. And there's nothing alarming or surprising about his trip to that point. Now that's what we've been praying for the McKinsey visit, right? That they would depart Lake Jackson, go straight to Dallas, spend the night overnight in Little Rock, make a stop in St. Louis, and arrive at uh, Springfield where the cargo was going to be unloaded. That's our prayer for the McKenzie's. And they're on the road as we speak. So the first three stops of Paul's journey, there's really nothing alarming about it, but the pace really picks up as we get to stop number four. So let's read that starting in verse 4, chapter 21, verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So when Paul got to the city of Tyre, which is on the coast of Palestine, north of Jerusalem, he stayed with the Christian believers for seven days. And it says they became very close because the I mean, they came close with their wives, with their children. They had lived in their homes. They had probably shared testimonies. Think about this. These are probably Jewish believers visiting with Gentile believers, talking about what God had done in their lives and the common bond that they felt. Can you relate to that? I mean, can you relate to the bond these believers developed with each other? Have you experienced the same thing? I suspect you probably have. When you meet a new Christian, it's like, You've known them for a long time. Doesn't that happen to you when you meet somebody? It's like your spirit is talking to their spirit and there's a common bond there. I'm convinced this is what happened with Paul when he stayed in Tyre for seven days. They become very, very close in a very short period of time because of the common bond that they had in Christ. They shared the same Holy Spirit. And so Paul left Tyre after seven days. So the first four stops go pretty quickly except let's go back one time except for verse 4b read 4b again with me the second half of verse 4 and through the spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem it's an interesting verse is it, it sounds it, when you just read that verse what does it sound like it sounds like the holy spirit is telling Paul don't go don't go to Jerusalem yet Paul goes So the question is, is Paul being disobedient? Is he being rebellious to what the Holy Spirit is telling him to do? There are actually some very uh, accomplished Bible teachers who say, yes, he was being disobedient. But I don't think that he was being disobedient at all. And I say that not because he wasn't capable of being disobedient. I mean, think about the whole chapter 7 of Romans where he talks about, you know, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I end up doing, you know, woe is me. He was fully capable of disobedience. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says he was the foremost of sinners. So Paul knew he was a sinner. He wasn't afraid to tell us he was a sinner. So it's not beyond Paul to be rebellious and disobey what the Spirit was telling him. But I don't think that's what he did because of the preponderance of what we read in the scriptures. So let's look back at what Paul says about this trip to Jerusalem. Flip back to Acts chapter 9 with me and let's just see uh, some references to Paul's suffering and what Paul's reaction is in some of these verses. So Acts chapter 9 verse 16 takes place right after Paul is converted. He's still blind. God comes to Ananias from the Antioch church and tells tells Ananias to go talk to Paul go talk to your arch enemy who you've heard about who's come here to persecute you and your fellow believers and go talk to him because I have something to tell him and what does God say in verse 16 to Ananias for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name so for how long had Paul known that he was going to suffer 20 years at this point. I'm convinced God kind of laid it out for him very early. Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to suffer for my name. And he says you're going to suffer uh, for the sake of Christ. So Paul knew for a long time that his ministry was going to include suffering. Flip forward a little bit to Acts chapter 19. So 19 verse 21. This is when Paul is in Ephesus, about in the middle of his third journey. Paul writes in verse 21. Now after these events. Paul resolved. After these events. These events happened to be a revival basically. That took place in the city of Ephesus. Before the riot that you studied about several months ago. But there was a huge revival. People were burning their their sorcery books. And sources of idol worship. So there was a big revival. And it says after this. Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia. And Achaia. And go to Jerusalem saying. After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So the way the ESV is written and in the New American Standard as well, says after these events Paul resolved in the Spirit with a capital S. And when we read capital S in the Spirit, we assume it mean we understand it to mean the Holy Spirit. But I'm told there are no capital letters in the Greek out in the Greek writing, so that's an interpretation. In fact, the NIV Doesn't interpret it that way. It interprets it as he resolved it in his own spirit. That he kind of argued with himself and resolved within himself. Made a decision within himself to go to Jerusalem. So it's not super clear in that scripture that it's the Holy Spirit telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. I think it probably is even from that scripture. But admittedly you could interpret it either way. Okay so Paul's decided all the way back in Ephesus I'm going to Jerusalem. Did he decide on his own or did he decide with the Holy Spirit's leading? Flip forward one chapter, chapter 20. This is right when he's talking to the Ephesian elders before he gets back on the boat in Miletus to head off on stop number one. This is what he tells the uh, Ephesian elders. Starting in verse 22. Chapter 20, verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem... Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So here he says he's doing what the Holy Spirit is telling him to do and he says he's uncertain about the details but he knows one thing it's going to be bad there's going to be suffering it might even lead to death he doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen but he also says it's not new news what's he say in every city I go to this comes up again right Either, either by the Holy Spirit telling him or the Holy Spirit telling other people like he told the believers in Tyre he says every city I go to this comes up that there's going to be suffering in Jerusalem. But he says at the end of that passage that he views this as part of his ministry call. He's going to finish what God's given him to do. So here it's pretty plain that that Paul is convinced he's being led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem even though there's going to be danger there. And there's going to be suffering. Now you don't have to turn here, but we'll read later in Acts chapter 23 and Acts 24 when Paul is standing trial... He, he makes the statement that I have a clear conscience before God. I'm convinced Paul wouldn't say that if he had just been disobedient and went to Jerusalem against the Holy Spirit's leading. So I'm absolutely convinced from the preponderance of the Scripture that Paul was being obedient, that he was going to Jerusalem because God was leading him there. So back to 4B, what's it mean? And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. I think what the the passage means is through the Spirit, they were being told that Paul is going to suffer and have difficulties in Jerusalem. Just like Paul said back in chapter 20. And on their own, they were saying, don't go, Paul. We would have the same reaction, would we not? The Holy Spirit's told us there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be hardships. Uh, Don't go. And so they were telling Paul not to go. So that was entire. That was stop number four on the journey. Let's go to stop number five. That's uh, Ptolemy or if you're in Texas you would say Ptolemy. Uh, any, Any opportunity to get an extra syllable we take it. So Ptolemy starting in verse seven. Let's go to 27 verse seven. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. That's it. Now I find it amazing that everywhere Paul goes, he's staying with another Christian group. They're everywhere. The Christians are everywhere. Now when we read the book of Acts, we get certain elements of it. But the book of Acts isn't everything that God was doing on the earth during that time period. We see it here, right? There's Christian churches all over the place. Everywhere Paul goes, he's staying with another set of Christians. So what we know from Acts, what we know from the Bible, actually is just a small part of what God's doing in this world, right? He gives us glimpses of what he's doing, but he doesn't tell us everything. It's a perfect example. He goes to Ptolemy and there's another Christian, there's another church there. We have no idea how that church was founded, We don't know who founded it. We don't know how. We don't know on what circumstances. We just know there was a body of believers there in Ptolemy. So let's go on to the last stop, which is uh, Caesarea. And we're going to cover that in verses 8 through 16. 8 through 16 of chapter 21. So on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven... And stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So they get to Caesarea, which is uh, Jerusalem's seaport at the time, and the Roman capital of the the province of Palestine. Now apparently they get there with time to spare because it says they stayed there for some time. If you just add up the days of Paul's journey from Philippi up to this point, it's about 36 days. So he had 50 days to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He apparently arrived there with a little bit of time to spare. And they stayed for some time. And they stayed with this guy named Philip, the evangelist. So who was Philip, one of the seven? If you remember back in Acts chapter 6, 25 years prior to this time, about, the church... Selected seven deacons to help the elders. So the deacons were to help with the distribution of food and taking care of the Jerusalem believers. Seven men were chosen Stephen, Philip, and five other guys. So Philip was one of the original seven deacons that was selected in the area of Jerusalem, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, the scriptures say. That was Philip. Now, in the following chapter, his friend Stephen. Was killed. you remember the, the story of Stephen being killed by the Jerusalem leaders? Uh, testified before the Jewish council. They uh, accused him of blasphemy. Ordered him to be death by stoning. And he was killed. While Paul was watching, it says in chapter 7. In the first part of chapter 8, it says Paul was actually not only watching, he was approving. That was Philip's friend Stephen. Martyred 25 years earlier with Paul approving. And then because of Paul's persecution of the church, Philip actually flees Jerusalem. He goes to Samaria. He uh, evangelizes the area of Samaria. He meets the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that story where he converts the, the African leader uh, on his chariot. And then finds himself going up the Mediterranean coast from city to city evangelizing. It says eventually the end of chapter 8 says he settled in Caesarea. That's where we find him today, 20 plus years later, he's in Caesarea. So think about Philip and Paul for a minute. They didn't have a really good first meeting, did they? I'm sure Philip was there or knew about his friend Stephen being killed with Paul approving And then Philip had to flee because of Paul's persecution of the church. So 25 years earlier, they didn't get off to a very good start. Imagine what it must have been like when Paul showed up at Philip's house. It's an amazing story, isn't it? It's an amazing story. I'm sure Philip had heard about Paul's conversion and Paul's work with the Gentiles. I'm sure Paul probably remembered Philip. I bet they had quite a reunion when they got together with now a common bond in Christ. Uh, when they stayed at his house. So Philip, it says, was an evangelist. A herald of the good news is literally what it means. A herald of the good news. And in the Bible, Philip is the only person who's given that title. Now Paul does encourage Timothy in in the second letter to do the work of an evangelist. But as far as calling someone an evangelist, only Philip bears that title in the New Testament. And then we see this guy named uh, in verse 10 and 11 we see a prophet named Agabus. Also somebody we're familiar with from earlier in Acts. Because back in uh, Acts chapter 11 when Paul was serving at the church in Antioch it says some prophets, plural came up from Jerusalem including this man named Agabus. And Agabus made a prophesy that there was going to be a severe famine in the area. In fact the famine was going to impact the entire Roman world at that time and the prophecy came true that was Agabus so here Agabus tells Paul in a very visual display what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem right he's going to be bound up by whom by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem Paul and what did the believers say to Paul don't go (laughs) just like the believers we studied earlier they heard about Paul's difficulties that were coming and their reaction was don't go in fact they pleaded with Paul not to go now I want to take a little bit of a side journey here which is a little bit out of character with me you've heard it said that the uh, the joy is in the journey I've never understood that quite frankly because uh, the joy for me is finishing something and even better if you can check it off your to do list when you're finished that's joy even if you have to add it to your to-do list after you do it that's okay because it's still it's still good to finish but we're going to take a side journey today because I'm trying to learn in retirement that the joy is in the journey so uh, we see an interesting thing here in this section on Caesarea we see an evangelist and we see a prophet which kind of to me begs the question about who are these guys what's this prophet what's this evangelist Uh, There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 4. It's written at the top of the screen there that says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers in the Greek go together, I'm told. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body of Christ. So if you look at the key ministries in the church, it started with the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, typically eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Their role was to establish the church. And there were prophets in the early church. It carries over from the Old Testament. But the prophet's role was to preach and to provide practical revelation like Agabus did. His revelation was not about, you know, the coming end times. His revelation was about there's going to be a famine. Get prepared. Get your stuff ready. Right, so it was more practical revelation that the, apostles, that the prophets in the New Testament did, the ones we know about. So actually in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls, calls those two, the apostles and the prophets, the pillars of the church. That's how the church was founded, based on the pillars of the apostles and the prophets. But towards the end of Paul's writing, specifically his epistle letters, you, you don't see so much the apostles and the prophets, you see evangelists, and teacher pastors, the evangelist role being to expand the church, just like Philip had been doing, and the teacher pastors' role to preach and provide practical care for the church. And so you see in the Book of Acts this transition from apostles and prophets to evangelists and teacher pastors. You're wondering where the elders are. There, the elders actually, the term elder is used interchangeably in several passages, including Acts chapter twenty with pastors so it's the same role as a pastor is the role of an elder Okay, so those are the roles that we fill in the church today typically now are evangelist and teacher pastors interestingly Paul is referred to in the scriptures in all four cases Paul did all four roles he was described as an apostle a prophet an evangelist and a teacher so so much for our side trip back to Caesarea that's where we were when we left off Let's look back at verse 10. Philip, the evangelist, also had four unmarried daughters who also had the gift of prophecy. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit through Luke would include that there because we don't know anything else about these four daughters or what they did. There are early church writers who write that they were actually keepers of the early church history. But we don't know that from the scriptures. So we don't know why Paul and why Luke wanted to include this comment about the, the, four, uh, the four daughters. It's interesting, some, uh, some writers I've, I've read in preparation for this believe that the four daughters actually helped Luke with some of the history of the early church. Because Luke actually stays in Caesarea two years, as Paul's in prison, and we'll read on later in Acts, so Luke was actually in Caesarea for two years, may well have gotten some help as he did his research, but all of that's from early writers and not from the scriptures. So that's Paul's, that's Philip's four unmarried daughters. There's another character there we see in verse 12 and 14 where Luke writes, We and the people there urge Paul not to go. So who was urging Paul not to go? Luke? His friends? His travel companions that we looked at earlier, everybody was urging Paul, don't go. And Paul's response was basically, stop breaking my heart. You're hurting, you're breaking my heart, you're trying to break me down, stop. He was committed to go, and they were, they were really working on him. So it wasn't a casual, I don't think you should go, Paul. They were trying to prevent Paul from going. But eventually they go and and it says the Caesarean believers accompanied Paul in verse 15 all the way to Caesarea. That's about 60 miles by foot. So it would have taken them two or three days. So instead of just saying goodbye at the door or waving from the front yard like Pam and I do when the grandchildren leave, they walked them all the way to Caesarea 60 miles to help them find a place to stay. So that's the 16 verses we wanted to study this morning. I find it always beneficial just to step back from it. That's that's the verses. That's the details. Step back. What's the big picture? What's going on here? So the question I have for you, does, uh, does God sometimes lead us into hardships and difficulties? Does God sometimes lead us into hardships and difficulties? And my answer to you is absolutely absolutely yes think about it just from the book of Acts that you've been studying think about all the apostles back in Acts chapter 5 they went to testify before the Jewish council and what did the Jewish council do to them? they beat them and kicked them out and told them don't talk anymore about this gospel stuff and they left rejoicing that they had been considered worthy of being beaten for the name of Christ so God led them into trouble you think God led them to talk to the Jewish council? absolutely Stephen we talked about. James and Peter in Acts chapter 12. James was killed. Peter was arrested for leading the early church. Think about what Paul went through. What you read about so far about Paul in Acts. He actually gives a list himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. About his difficulties. He said he faced 40 lashes five times. Three times was beaten with rods, one time was stoned, three times shipwrecked, frequently in danger from rivers. You ever used to wonder what that meant, frequently in danger from rivers? But it seems all too familiar right now, doesn't it? Frequently in danger from rivers, robbers, in trouble from Jews, and trouble from Gentiles, in trouble in the city, in trouble in the wilderness, in trouble in the sea. He had, God had led him in a lot of places where there were difficulties and hardships just as God had promised him at his conversion. So in my mind there's no doubt that these men were eagerly pursuing their God-ordained Christian ministry yet hardship and difficulty was their constant companion. So I would tell you yes, God sometimes leads his children into hardships and suffering and that would be big news for some Christians. That would be big news for some churches but I believe that's what the Bible teaches and it begs the question for me and that is why would God do that? now I've learned one thing in my uh, study of the scriptures over the last uh, 29 years is anytime a question begins with why would God fill in the blank the accurate answer is I don't know that's why if I wrote a theology book it would either be very short or very repetitious. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We, we don't understand God's minds, right? His ways are not our ways. And we get glimpses of it, but we can't understand the full picture. So, the honest answer is why would God do that is I don't really know. But he does give us some, uh, some clues and some glimpses about what's going on. First of all, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible says God is sovereign. He's sovereign over what we see. What we don't see, he's sovereign over what we think of as good and what we think of as bad. He's sovereign over everything that comes our way. So everything we go through passes through his hands. I can tell you that for sure, that God is sovereign. I can also tell you that from our perspective, looking at from our life from our perspective, sometimes trouble and hardships find us. Right? We weren't looking for a flood last week. It found us. It's just part of life. So sometimes hardships and and difficulties happen. They happen to us. We're not looking for them. But at the same time, sometimes God sends us into trouble. Sometimes he even warns us as he sends us into trouble. As he did with Paul during this passage. Now all that's kind of fuzzy. You know, I can't really explain to you exactly what it means. Uh, but I can tell you a couple rock solid truths that accompany what I just said. Number one, the difficulties and the hardships are always, and you can underline always, for the ultimate benefit of God's children. We learn that in Romans 8:28, right? Everything is for the benefit of His children. And I can also tell you that at least part of the benefit includes the purification of our faith and the strengthening of our hope. Part of the reason God gives us difficulties and hardships is to purify our faith as Peter says like gold is purified in a fire our faith is purified through difficulties and trials. But it also serves to strengthen our hope. So um, I've got to give you a diagram. We learned this in Engineering 101. We learned that uh, Anything, even life itself can be reduced to a two-dimensional diagram. And so, uh, this is only five verses, so this is easy, right? This is a diagram of only five verses. So, uh, let's read Romans 5, the first five verses. So, Romans 5, the first five verses. This is a book that Paul wrote again immediately before he started this journey. And so, the first two verses say... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which, we now st- in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what that says to me is we place our faith in Christ and we are justified. We're at peace with God. And as a result of that, we stand in grace. We stand in God's unmerited favor. We live in a life of grace, the grace of God. The wrath that we deserve has been set aside and we stand in grace. And because of that, we have a hope of living in glory with God, right? I mean, that's to me what those first couple of verses say. When we're justified, God gives us grace and hope. We know Hope is not wishful thinking in the Bible. Hope is a certainty of what we haven't yet attained. So we have hope that we're going to be with God in heaven. So that's pretty straightforward. But verse 3 says more than that. So there's more than just that. Right? So more than that. Starting in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the first thing I see there is sufferings is plural. It doesn't say our suffering. It says our sufferings. So we go again through suffering, suffering, sufferings. And that, what's the result of that suffering? It gives us endurance. It gives us the ability to endure more, even more than we had before. And then it gives us character. This word character could be translated testedness. It's the Greek word for being tested. It, it gives us testedness, provenness. And that gives us hope through the suffering because we have God's love. It says the Holy Spirit... One time came into our lives and gives us a constant overflowing of God's love. So because of we, we're in the middle of the suffering, we know we have God's love, it allows us to pursue—I mean, persevere through the suffering. And you do it again. It's a cycle, right? And think about Paul. He's been through this loop hundreds of times by now. So what was Paul's hope or his faith like by the end of this chapter 20, 21? His endurance was strong. His character was unshakable. And his hope more certain than ever. He'd been through that cycle many, many times. He'd invested his 20 years of ministry wisely. And so from Paul's perspective, it was full speed ahead. Yeah, I know there's going to be suffering. I know there's going to be hardship. But I'm ready for it. Right? Because the, the, the love God has put in me, let's go. Because he felt he had... An ordained job from God to do. So let me be clear. I don't think the Bible teaches us that we have to go looking for trouble. Okay, the Bible doesn't teach us to go look for trouble this afternoon because it'll strengthen your faith. That's not what it says. But it also teaches us that we don't have to look for a way out if we know that God has called us to do something that involves hardships or difficulties. Think about our uh, faith in action people over here. You think they knew it was going to be difficult this week? Absolutely. Right? It's going to be hot. It's going to be tiring. It's going to be hard work. Going to sleep on probably this floor. I don't know. Where you, where'd you sleep? On this floor? Yeah. But they weren't looking for a way out. You're looking to go do what God has called you to do. It's an example of what God calls. So God doesn't tell us to go look for trouble. But he also tells us don't look for a way out. If I'm sending you into a difficult or a hard situation. So we've been all over the Mediterranean this morning. It was a good trip. We've discussed a lot. At least I've discussed a lot. So um, how are we going to apply it? How are we going to apply what we've learned to our own lives today? So let me talk first to the people who uh, have not yet professed faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to be looking at this story and saying to yourself, Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Why would a man, knowing there's going to be hardships and difficulties, potentially life-threatening, go to Jerusalem? Makes zero sense. And actually, that would be a very good question for you. But I would encourage you to ask that question about another man before you ask it about Paul. Because there's another man who knew that going to Jerusalem was going to involve hardships and difficulties. He knew it was going to be life-threatening. Yet he went anyway. And that man was Jesus Christ. And why did he go? He went to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for the sins we've committed. He went to take the brunt of the wrath that we deserve. And to then offer us the free gift of eternal life. So if you've not yet accepted that gift, I would beg you and implore you to take it. It's there for the offering. Eternity with God through the death of Jesus Christ. So, I would encourage you to place your faith in him and answer that question. You first have to deal with why would Jesus go to Jerusalem before you have to deal with why would Paul go to Jerusalem. But for the rest of us who have placed our faith in Christ we got to deal with why would Paul, why would God send Paul to Jerusalem? And so let me share with you just what I think are is a principle that we can get from this passage of scripture and then a few questions for all of us. The principle I would say is that God strengthens our faith through difficulties and trials. He builds up and strengthens our faith through difficulties and trials. So the questions that occur to me are, think about your conversion And when has your faith grown the most? I don't know but I suspect it was when things were difficult when you faced trials when you couldn't handle it on your own it's typically when our faith grows the most. I can think back in my own life of financial challenges or troubling medical diagnosis or uh, work emergencies or uh, preaching (laughs) or involvement in starting this church. All faith building exercises. So the question that goes with that is when you thought about when your faith was built the most was it recent or was it in the distant past? I want my faith-building exercises to be today. Don't you? you want them to build on each other. So God builds our... strengthens our faith through difficulties and trials. But additionally, you think about what's, call, what's God calling you to do right now that might be difficult or dangerous. In other words, what or where or who is your Jerusalem what's God calling you to do that might be difficult a mission trip maybe I don't know a witness to a friend witness to a coworker or a neighbor even more difficult witness to a family member a volunteer in this church support a ministry or a person financially help some flood victims Help those who might have lost a job. My encouragement for all of us is don't let the potential difficulties hold you back when God calls you to do something. And this is the most convicting for me is what advice are you giving to fellow believers who are facing decisions with potential difficulties or even dangers? I shudder to think what I told people when they told me, you know, I think God's calling me to go to Haiti on a mission trip oh you know it's pretty dangerous down there lots of disease you know think about what advice you give people when they've told you that they think God might be calling them to do something that's difficult or hard all too often I have told them about the difficulties and the hardships instead of praying with them about man if that's God's will that would be fantastic you know so we need to be careful about the advice we give when people tell us what, what they feel God's putting on their heart. Does that make sense? So one final thought before we, uh, before we wrap up. Earlier we talked about the purpose of warnings which was to uh, get us to avoid pending danger, take shelter, take another route, etc. Well, it doesn't seem that, like that's why God was warning Paul at all, does it? He wasn't warning Paul about this so that he would take some other route or take the easy out. So why do you think God made it so clear so many times to so many people in so many different cities that Paul's visit to Jerusalem was going to be incredibly difficult? Why would God do that? It wasn't for Paul... I think all God had to tell Paul was one time, it's going to be difficult, and Paul got it. (laughs) Paul got it. I think it was for Paul's friends. I think it was for the people with Paul. I think it was for Luke. I think it was for those Gentile believers who were traveling with Paul. I think it was for the Jewish believers who he visited when he got to Palestine. I think it was for us. Because when we earnestly pursue our God-given mission, even when there's difficulties or hardships, it not only builds our faith, it builds the faith of those who are watching us. Is it true? Can you think of a believer who has strengthened your faith simply by the way they live their own? A parent or a grandparent or a church member or a missionary or a Bible character. You know, our faith is not only strengthened by the trials we go through, it's sometimes strengthened by the trials that others go through and the way they go through them. So, we've got opportunities now to strengthen each other's faith, don't we? Think about the challenges that are ahead. The flooding that's in this area and the challenge to help each other with that. A new building. And all the issues and problems that come with owning real estate. Finding a new pastor. Think there'll be trials and tribulations in finding a new pastor? We hope not, but I suspect so. (laughs) It's challenging. And that's just touching the surface of the opportunities that we have. Not only to build our own faith, but to build the faith of those around us. So I think what God tells us is to... Ignore the warnings. Ignore the warnings of this will be difficult. Ignore the warnings of this will be expensive. Ignore the warnings of it's going to take a lot of your time. And be a faith builder for each other this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, a chance to read it and study it. We pray that you would uh, help us remember what you want us to. Father, most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ who willingly made his trip to Jerusalem on our behalf. And we stand in your grace because of him. We thank you in his name. Amen.